Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got a great episode for you guys today, jam-packed with some bizarre and crazy details. I'm going to start out with some updates for some of the cases we have covered off on in the past. First and foremost, Elizabeth Holmes, again, says she can't pay $250 a month in restitution payments after her prison release. Shannon Thaler wrote this article. Jailed Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes claims she will not be able to afford restitution payments of $250 a month to victims of her massive fraud after she's released from prison. Holmes' lawyers insisted before a judge that the disgraced Theranos founder has limited financial resources that will make it hard for her to make her restitution payments. Aside from having to spend more than a decade in federal prison, Holmes and her ex-boyfriend, former Theranos COO Ramash Sunny Balwani, were both ordered to pay $452 million in restitution to the investors who bought into their claims of a revolutionary diagnostic tool using just a drop of blood. Theranos investor and media mogul Rupert Murdoch, chairman of News Corp, the publisher of The Post, is owed $175 million of these funds, while lesser amounts will be distributed to 13 other fraud victims, including $40 million to Walgreens and $14.5 million to Safeway. Holmes is being held jointly liable for the lump sum, as Balwani is already in prison after being convicted on a broader range of felonies in a separate trial. Federal prosecutors noted a clerical error earlier this month because the court filing regarding the restitution did not specify a payment schedule. U.S. District Judge Edward Davila, who presided over both Holmes and Balwani's trials, corrected the paperwork to require Holmes to make monthly payments once she finishes out her 11-year sentence at Federal Prison Camp Bryan, a low-security federal facility for women just northwest of Houston. Holmes' lawyers asked Davila on Monday to reject the prosecutor's proposed correction, citing substantial evidence showing Ms. Holmes' limited financial resources. The claim is common in large financial frauds, but the government is required to seek restitution and a payment schedule like the one Holmes is being held liable for is typical in ensuring convicts make an effort. Holmes Legal Counsel also noted that judge treated Ms. Holmes and Mr. Balwani differently in sentencing. They wrote that Balwani was ordered to pay back a $25,000 fine while Holmes was not fined. Davila ordered Balwani to pay back his fine in quarterly payments of $25 while incarcerated and at least $1,000 monthly or 10% of his earnings once he is freed, which is substantially more than Elizabeth Holmes's. Holmes turned herself into federal prison in Texas two weeks ago to begin her 11-year and three-month sentence. She was also accused of defrauding investors of more than $700 million with the made-up claims. Before her house of cards came tumbling down, she had a net worth of $4.5 billion at just 30 years old. As of 2023, the figure has fallen to zero. In a profile on Holmes in May, ahead of her surrender, she told the New York Times she couldn't pay her legal expenses and would have to work for the rest of her life to try to pay for it. When asked if her husband's family helped in paying legal fees, she reportedly shook her head no. Holmes' spouse, Billy Evans, is the heir to the prominent Evans Hotel Group in San Diego. Holmes even had a legal team quit representing her in 2019 after she failed to pay her law firm bills for more than a year. A pre-sentencing report estimated her legal fees to be more than $30 million, which is absolutely incredible. 
The 39-year-old, now known as Federal 24965-111, was seen crying along Evans during his first visit to the prison camp. One picture showed Holmes walking alongside Evans and clinging to one of his fingers, an embrace that appeared to violate the prison's policy against prolonged physical contact. The two have two young children together, a son, William, and a daughter, Invictus. They lived with their children in a $9 million mansion in San Diego. Holmes is presently expected to share a four-person bunk where inmates were woken at 6 a.m. for food service duties at four factory jobs, earning between 12 cents and $1.15 per hour. Wow. It's incredible that she does not believe she can pay $250 a month. I mean, it just blows the mind. And next we have an update on another case that we covered off on, and that was the Jeffrey Epstein case. Evidently, JP Morgan settled a lawsuit with Jeffrey Epstein victims for $290 million. David Hollerith and Alexis Keenan wrote this article. JP Morgan Chase reached a tentative $290 million settlement with victims of Jeffrey Epstein, one of two lawsuits alleging the nation's largest bank ignored warnings about its longtime client and facilitated his alleged sex trafficking. The deal came roughly two weeks after JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon was asked by lawyers what he knew about the bank's dealings with Epstein. One of Dimon's former top deputies, Jeff Stanley was also questioned under oath last weekend. The case at issue was filed in November of last year by a woman who was listed anonymously as Jane Doe in court papers. She said she was sexually abused by Epstein and Epstein paid her and other victims with money housed at JP Morgan. The suit sought class action status on behalf of hundreds of alleged victims. The bank agreed to pay $290 million, but the terms of the settlement still have to be approved by a Manhattan federal judge. There was no admission of liability by JP Morgan as part of the agreement. We all now understand that Epstein's behavior was monstrous. And we believe this settlement is in the best interest of all parties, especially the survivors who suffered unimaginable abuse at the hands of this man, said a bank spokesperson. Lawyer David Boyce also represented the victims, said taken together or individually, the historic recoveries from the banks who provided financial services to Jeffrey Epstein speak for themselves. It has taken a long time, too long, but today is a great day for Jeffrey Epstein survivors and a great day for justice. Boyce said the bank has asked us not to reveal the number of victims covered by this settlement at this time, and the pending further discussions are going to respect that request. The deal does not eliminate all J.P. Morgan legal headaches associated with Epstein. J.P. Morgan is still being sued by the government of the U.S. Virgin Islands, who also claimed J.P. Morgan facilitated Epstein's sex trafficking. The bank is also suing Stanley, who got to know Epstein while running J.P. Morgan's asset management unit. J.P. Morgan claims Stanley misled the bank's executives about Epstein, and Stanley's lawyers have denied the allegations, saying Stanley never knew about Epstein's alleged crimes. Deutsche Bank agreed to pay $75 million to settle a lawsuit with Epstein's victims last month. The bank took Epstein as a client in 2013 after J.P. Morgan tossed him out. Epstein, who pleaded guilty in 2008 to soliciting a minor for prostitution, was arrested again in 2019 on child sex trafficking charges. He was later found dead in prison in an apparent suicide. The announcement of a new J.P. Morgan settlement comes just weeks after Diamond faced a series of questions about what he knew about Epstein while a convicted sex predator was a longtime customer of the bank. 
During a May 26th deposition conducted at J.P. Morgan's headquarters in Manhattan, Diamond said repeatedly he never met Epstein or talked to him. He also said he had no memory of being told anything about him by any of his executives. In fact, he said he was not aware of a 2011 email either from one of his top deputies advising that Epstein should not be a client of the bank. The email, according to a lawyer who conducted the deposition, was sent by J.P. Morgan General Counsel Stephen Cutler to two other executives who reportedly directed to Diamond Asset Management head Mary Edros and Stanley. This is not an honorable person in any way, Cutler wrote in the July 20th, 2011 message, according to the lawyer conducting the deposition. He should not be a client. Diamond said he wasn't aware of the message at the time, but I know it today. On Friday, a plaintiff's lawyer asked the case presiding judge to grant a follow-up deposition of Diamond. In a letter to the court, the lawyer said it was a document from the bank produced after Diamond's May 26th deposition and was one of the most relevant and responsive documents produced to date. It included a timeline of electronic communications that cited emails between Stanley and Epstein. These late-produced documents, according to the June 9th letter to the judge from the plaintiff's lawyer, demonstrate that J.P. Morgan was fully capable of learning the full extent of Epstein and Stanley's personal relationship and yet waited to do so until 2019, despite the myriad of red flags and public reports about Epstein's conduct over the years. A bank spokesman said on Monday of Epstein that any association with him was a mistake and we regret it. We would never have continued to do business with him if we believed he was using our bank in any way to help commit heinous crimes. Wow. <laughs> it appears that that case just continues to unfold. It's kind of like the gift that keeps on giving. And as soon as any kind of black book from Epstein comes out, we are soon going to see a lot more people getting turned over in the cases related to Jeffrey Epstein. We will continue to keep you guys posted as that one unfolds. Then we have another update. So we covered off on the case of Vicki White and Casey White way back in May of 2022. So if you want to listen to that episode, go hit that one up. But the update from today is an article by Elizabeth Ford, and it's called, I feel like the most hated man in the world, inmate gets life for escaping prison with help from guard he, quote, loved. An Alabama inmate was handed a life sentence on Thursday for his 2022 escape from prison with the help of a corrections officer. Casey White, 39, pleaded guilty to escape in exchange for the dismissal of a felony murder charge involving the death of corrections officer Vicki White, who helped him escape and then ultimately took her own life as cops caught up with them. He agreed to the maximum sentence of life without parole, according to the Associated Press. I feel like the most hated man in the world, he said in the Lauderdale County courtroom. I loved Vicki and I wouldn't drag her name through the mud for anyone in this courtroom. Vicki took me out because she said right was right, wrong is wrong, he continued. First person to show me affection, first person to give me a hug in six years. The pair who are not related were involved in a romantic relationship and law enforcement initially thought the inmate kidnapped the corrections officer. Casey White escaped the Lauderdale County Detention Center in Alabama on April 29, 2022 with the aid of Vicki White, the assistant director of corrections at the time. Video evidence showed Vicki White escorting Casey White into a patrol car that they ditched in a parking lot a few miles away from the prison. After an 11-day manhunt, the chase ended in Evansville, Indiana, where Casey White was recaptured. As authorities closed in on the duo, Vicki White died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The felony murder charge against Casey White was based on an Alabama law that allows someone to be charged with murder if someone is killed when a felony is being committed. 
In this case, the felony was Casey White's escape from prison. It wasn't supposed to go that way, he said to Vicki White's mother in the courtroom. White allegedly admitted the two had fallen in love and were planning to start a new life together. Lauderdale County District Attorney Chris Connolly said during the June 8th hearing that the events surrounding the escape and death had a tremendous impact on Vicki White's family and that her mother wanted to speak but was too emotional. Defense attorney Mark McDonald wrote that he had never seen a case like this. As good as Vicki was, as kind as she might have been, she had a key to get Casey out. He didn't have it. She did. White was already serving a 75-year prison term at the time of his escape for a series of criminal acts, including breaking into his ex-girlfriend's home, killing her dog, and holding her and two other people hostage back in 2015. While in prison, White allegedly confessed to the murder of Connie Ridgway as well, who was stabbed to death in October of 2015. He later recounted this confession. His capital murder trial regarding the Ridgway killing has also been delayed due to White's escape. It is now set for August. We will keep you guys posted. And if you recall, we covered a case of a young woman pretending to be a high school student earlier, but it appears now that there is yet another case being investigated in this one. And this is a 17-year-old high school student was actually a 28-year-old woman, Louisiana cops say. And Mark Price wrote this article. In a bizarre scenario straight out of a movie, a 28-year-old woman pretended to be 17 and managed to successfully enroll in a Louisiana high school. The masquerade came to an end June 13th when deputies with the St. Charles Parish Sheriff's Office arrested the woman and her 46-year-old mother on fraud charges. On Monday, May 29th, detectives were notified by officials with the St. Charles Parish Public Schools of a possible adult attending Hanville High School in Boat, Louisiana, through the 2022-23 school year. School administration received a tip that a female student who was on record as being 17 years old was in fact an adult, possibly in her mid-20s. School administration began an internal investigation at that time and later notified the sheriff's office of their finding. Detectives discovered the family used a fraudulent passport and birth certificate to enroll in the school. The mother and daughter who share a home and boat are also charged with one count of injury to public records, a law covering the adulteration or falsification of public records. If found guilty, the two could pay thousands of dollars in fines and serve up to five years prison time. Investigators did not reveal when the woman enrolled in the high school or her grade level. The school is about 25 miles west of New Orleans and has about 1,000 400 students in grades 9 through 12. May 24th was the last day of classes for the 22-23 school year and seniors graduated May 17th. District officials released a statement noting that enrollment records and procedures were aligned with state law. In this case, however, the standard documents provided by a parent may have been fraudulent. As a result of this discovery, St. Charles Parish Public Schools are conducting an audit of enrollment documents for students currently enrolled in St. Charles Parish Public Schools. They are also reviewing student enrollment policy and procedures and will make enhancements based upon that review. Moving forward, the school system will provide additional required standing for the school and school district level employees focus on recognizing the signs of potentially fraudulent documents. And again, as with the other case that we talked about, you have to wonder why anybody would want to go back to high school. It seems just crazy, right? We will keep you posted if we hear any details about this and maybe any motivation by this young woman. And one final article before we jump into the main case, and that is, this is a really crazy one. 
Harvard mortician sold human remains to doll shop and leather tanner. Genevieve Hole Allen wrote this article, and this is a creepy one. A former morgue manager at Harvard Medical School has been charged with stealing, selling, and shipping body parts donated for educational purposes, including skin and brains. Cedric Lodge, 55, is accused of conspiring with his wife, 63-year-old Denise Lodge, to sell the human remains to others and allegedly allowed two people into the morgue to choose which remains to purchase. Some of the body parts were later sold at Cat's Creepy Creations, and you can Google Cat's Creepy Creations and see some of the dolls that she makes, and whew, They are certainly creepy. Human skin has also allegedly ended up in the hands of a man who ran a leather tannery. The charges were filed this last week in the U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Pennsylvania, and they said that Mr. Lodge stole dissected portions of donated cadavers, including heads, brains, skin, bones, and other human remains, without the knowledge or permission of the school, and removed those remains from the morgue in Massachusetts and transported them to his residence in New Hampshire. Mr. and Miss Lodge were alleged to have stolen, sold, and transported the remains from 2018 until March 2023, sometimes using the U.S. Postal Service to do so. They were accused of communicating with buyers, including 44-year-old Katrine McLean, owner of Cat's Creepy Creations, and Joshua Taylor, 46, through telephone calls and social media. Miss McLean, the owner of Cat's Creepy Creations in Peabody, Massachusetts, she allegedly paid Cedric $600 for two dissected faces in October 2020. Meanwhile, Mr. Taylor has allegedly made 39 PayPal payments to the lodges for human remains amounting to more than $37,000. One alleged payment made to Denise Lodge on May 19th amounted to $1,000 and was sent with the memo head number seven. Mr. Taylor allegedly sent $200 in November 2020 with a message that said, Brains. All four have been charged with conspiracy and interstate transport of stolen goods. Miss McLean is also accused of selling stolen remains to other buyers in several states, including allegedly selling human skin to Jeremy Lee Pauley in Pennsylvania, who tanned it to create leather. Mr. Polly, 41, of Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, allegedly also bought some remains from Candace Chapman Scott of Little Rock, Arkansas, who worked at a mortuary. She had previously been indicted after authorities said Miss Scott stole body parts from cadavers she was supposed to be cremating. A total of seven people have been charged as part of a nationwide network that bought and sold human remains from the Harvard Medical School and a mortuary in Little Rock. Cat's Creepy Creations claimed on Instagram to offer creations that shock the mind and shake the soul, including creepy dolls, oddities, and bone art, with one post in December 2019 describing a display that included a real human vertebrae. The regional outlet reported that Mr. Lodge's responsibilities at Harvard Medical School included preparing for and intaking anatomical donors' bodies, coordinating embalming, overseeing the store and movement of cadavers to and from teaching labs, and when studies were complete, preparing remains to be transported to and from the external crematorium and when appropriate for burial. Miss Scott is accused of taking the corpses of two stillborn babies who were intended to be cremated and returned as remains to their family. 
Miss Scott allegedly first contacted Mr. Polly on Facebook in October 2021, saying, I follow your work and love it. Just out of curiosity, would you know anyone in the market for a fully intact, embalmed brain? Prosecutors allege that photos of brains and hearts were exchanged between the pair, as well as instructions on how to package the parts and a payment agreement. Miss Scott allegedly asked for $1,200 for all three pieces, including skull caps, before receiving that amount the next day. Human remains are donated voluntarily to Harvard Medical School for educational purposes, and when the school is finished with the remains, they are typically cremated and either returned to the donor's family or buried in a cemetery. The medical school from which Mr. Lodge was fired on May 6 said it was working with the authorities to examine records to determine which donated bodies were affected. Harvard University added that the U.S. Attorney's Office will continue working to identify the victims and contact their families. In a letter to the community, the deans of the medical school, George Daly and Edward Hunter, wrote, The reported incidents are a betrayal of HMS, and most importantly, each of the individuals who altruistically chose to will their bodies to HMS through the anatomical gift program to advance medical education and research. We are so very sorry for the pain this news will cause for our anatomical donors' families and loved ones, and HMS pledges to engage with them during this deeply distressing time. Mr. Taylor's attorney, Christopher Opel, told CNN they had no comment on the allegations. Wow, that really is truly creepy indeed. Now we are going to jump over to the main case for the day, and we are going to talk about Anaya Blanchard. You may remember the story initially because Darcy and I covered it when Anaya went missing originally and through the tragic discovery of her body. But today we are going to cover the details that weren't available when we first broke the story back in 2019. But Anaya was born June 22, 2000 in Northport, Alabama, near Birmingham. Her mother was Angela Harris and her father was Elijah Blanchard. Anaya had one younger brother, Elijah, who was 17 months younger than her, and her parents ended up splitting up in 2004. Her mother then started seeing a UFC fighter. And for those of you who don't know what that is, it is the Ultimate Fighting Championship, which is kind of a mixed martial arts promotional company run out of Vegas, Nevada. And as of 2022, it was considered the largest mixed martial arts promotion in the world. They have 20 weight divisions and over 600 events per year. Shortly after these two started dating, Angela, her mother, married Walt Harris. Throughout this time, Anaya was close with her family, especially her younger brother, Elijah, and Walt treated the two kids like they were part of his own family. And it seemed that they were all thriving in that period. As the years passed, Angela had two kids with Walt, and together the older siblings helped raise the younger ones, while their mother worked the night shift as a nurse. Unlike many teens, Anaya was friendly, well-rounded, and very driven. She played softball, participated in church activities, and got good grades. She was also pretty, outgoing, and happy. And if you look at pictures of this young lady, you really see how she lit up the room. And that is at the risk of sounding a little bit like Keith Morrison, right? At the time of her disappearance, Anaya was 19 and a student at the Southern Union State Community College. Evidently, she was studying early childhood education, and the two Blanchard siblings lived in apartments very close to one another while Elijah attended Auburn. According to friends and family, Anaya's plan was to, to get the first part of her education done at community college and then transfer to Auburn as well. 
The two siblings often hung out together, visiting their parents. The drive was about two hours, and the two siblings did it together as often as they could. Fast forward to October 23rd, 2019. Elijah, Anaya, and their mother had gone to a family funeral in Alabama. This was approximately four hours from where Elijah and Anaya lived. When they were driving back, the group stopped to visit with their stepfather who was training for an event. That's why he hadn't gone to the funeral as well. After a quick hello, the two teens got back in the car and headed home, arriving around 11 p.m. to Elijah's house. Anaya then turned her car towards home, which should have taken a very short period of time as it was only a three mile drive. The whole time Anaya had been texting her roommate, Sarah, keeping her posted on what was going on. Interestingly enough, Anaya verbalized on several occasions that her biggest fear was being kidnapped or murdered. So she regularly kept in touch with those around her, letting everyone know where she was all of the time. And she was said to have shared her phone via Find My Phone app as well. In the meantime, though, Anaya's roommate was expecting Anaya home in a short amount of time. When that expected time frame reached over half an hour, Sarah texted her roommate again asking where she was. Evidently, Anaya then texted back saying she was, quote, smoking a blunt, LOL, and that she had met someone named Eric. This was very alarming since Anaya's roommate insisted that that kind of language wasn't used by Anaya and she did not smoke marijuana. This was completely out of character for this young woman. And Sarah asked Anaya who she was with and the text back replied, I just met him, which was also very uncharacteristic. This made the roommate extremely suspicious. That's when the roommate checked the phone locator on Anaya's phone and it showed up at a nearby apartment complex. Evidently, this complex was well-known and a lot of college students hung out there where they would congregate and socialize. The roommate felt a little more reassured and she went to bed. However, the next morning, Anaya was still not home and when her mother attempted to have their regular morning FaceTime call, Anaya didn't pick up. By then, Anaya's location no longer showed up on the Find My Friends application and the phone appears to have been turned off. When Anaya did not show up for her nanny job, even more of her close circle became deeply concerned. And she would never do this sort of thing. She was very responsible and punctual. Anaya's roommate also insisted her friend would never leave her dog alone for an entire night. And that is in fact what happened. Panicked, Anaya's roommate started driving around looking for her friend's car, starting with the complex her phone had shown up at the previous night. Simultaneously, she contacted Elijah to let him know his sister had not come home the previous night. The family was immediately concerned given the list of uncharacteristic behaviors and strange texts from Anaya. Anaya's parents were immediately contacted and filled in on the details and the family got in the car and drove to Anaya's apartment right away to look for their daughter. Anaya was reported missing the day after she disappeared, October 24th, 2019. Luckily, the police took this case very seriously, unlike many other instances of teens going missing or minorities disappearing. The two days after Anaya went missing, police found her Honda CRV damaged and in an apartment complex approximately 55 miles from her home in Montgomery, Alabama. Evidently, the car was in disarray 
and had evidence of foul play, including blood on the passenger seat, indicating a life-threatening injury. There was a bullet hole in the passenger side door and shell casings in the left cup holder, as well as the very strong smell of cleaning products. Sadly, though, there was still no sign of Anaya. And in the meantime, her friends and family held vigils and continued searching for this young woman. Eight days later, Anaya's vehicle had been processed by the police, and unfortunately, it was determined at that time that there was a homicide involved in this case. Not long after, police found security footage at a nearby Chevron station at 11.21 p.m. on the day that Anaya disappeared. The video showed what appeared to be a very calm Anaya getting some chips and a drink. According to her family, this was part of her regular bedtime routine, so there was nothing necessarily unusual about it. Ominously, though, the footage also showed a man at the gas station at the same time, and they quickly moved in to interview people from the gas station, and one thought they saw a man force Anaya into a vehicle. Why they didn't report this is absolutely crazy to me, but supposedly Anaya drove off with this strange man. Around that time, though, Anaya had been gone for about two weeks, and police released the image of the mysterious unknown man at the Chevron gas station, and someone recognized him pretty quick and reported him to the police. His name was Ibrahim Yazid. He was a 29-year-old previously charged with kidnapping, robberies, and assault, as well as various other crimes. Clearly, this guy was a career criminal. Supposedly, he was out on bail at that time, awaiting trial. He was also said to be staying at a motel that was very close to the Chevron station where Anaya was last seen. Evidently, there was another witness at this time as well who claims that Yazid told him he had Blanchard's car and he would not reveal anything about Blanchard's whereabouts. He claimed he'd shot her after she'd went for the gun. Yazid was also known for two other serious incidences where he tried to kill police officers or seriously harm them on multiple occasions. There was also an aggravated battery of a police officer. Clearly, he was not a fan of the police. The police quickly tracked Yazid to a location in Florida, just past the Florida-Alabama state line, and grabbed him on kidnapping charges. But, as was expected, the arrest was challenging and Yazid struggled, causing the police to have to use force to apprehend him. He then waived extradition from Florida and was quickly sent back to Alabama to face charges. And through the entire process, he remained calm and seemed unaffected by the seriousness of this allegation against him. And although there were still no signs of Anaya and no further clues as to where she might be, police located additional people they believed were involved in Anaya's disappearance. One of these, the witness I spoke about earlier, was Antoine Fisher, who was also apprehended on charges that he helped dispose of critical evidence in this case and providing transport. And then there was David Johnson Jr., who allegedly hindered prosecution of Yazid. Charges against both of these men were later dropped, likely for agreeing to testify against Yazid. Evidently, Yazid had come to Fisher's home early in the morning of October 24th, 2019, and the two purchased gas for Anaya's car before going to another location to pick something up. Then they traveled to Montgomery, where Yazid picked up a gun, some sort of a rifle, and the two drove to a cemetery where Yazid drugged something wrapped in a blanket that looked like two legs. Fisher confronted Yazid, and Yazid told him not to worry. 
On November 25th, 2019, Anaya's body was found in the woods in Macon County. There was a bullet hole in her skull. She was wearing what authorities believed was the same outfit she disappeared in, and she was wrapped in the comforter that had been described by the witness. The body was officially identified two days later. According to police, Anaya had been kidnapped that fateful night in October in 2019, and she had been shot in the head as she tried to escape the CRV that Yazid was then driving. By December 2nd, 2019, murder charges were filed against Yazid and prosecutors wanted the death penalty. Yazid claimed that police had no evidence against him and acted strangely, laughing, smirking, and other oddly inappropriate behavior considering the seriousness of the crimes he was accused of. Many people believe the motivation of this crime was a robbery gone wrong. This case has drawn some significant attention though because of the fact that Yazid was out on bail for some very serious crimes when he kidnapped and killed Anaya. These were very violent felonies, robbery, drug charges, murder, assault, kidnapping, attempted murder, etc., and attempted murder, as we discussed earlier, though. And throughout all of this, Yazid was only sentenced to 13 months in prison, which ended up being suspended, and that translated to just six months of probation for some very serious crimes. He later served another eight months for a separate crime in another state involving drugs. And then the crime in 2018, which was kidnapping, robbery, attempted murder, and drugs possession. This was the crime he'd been out on bail for when the crimes against Anaya occurred in Alabama. The trial for Ibrahim Yazid is still pending after many delays due to COVID-19. The last update was in late March when Yazid pleaded not guilty for capital murder charges. The trial date has yet to be revealed. And in the meantime, though, Anaya's family is outraged by what they found out about the history of the man accused of killing their beloved daughter. They immediately got to work attempting to lobby for bail reform in Alabama. Prior to this, anyone not charged with a capital offense, namely murder, could get bail. But Anaya's family thought violent offenders and felons should not be allowed bail either. Not long after, Anaya's law was introduced to expand the exceptions on granting bail to other serious crimes like arson, burglary, domestic violence, aggravated child abuse, assault, robbery, kidnapping, human trafficking, rape, sodomy, sexual torture, and terrorism, as well as murder. This legislation would further allow judges to determine eligibility on a case-by-case basis for bail after a hearing on the issue. And the presenters of the case had to show that there was a flight risk or a threat to the community in order to refuse bail. Anaya's law was officially passed on November 8th, 2022, and there was also a scholarship established in Anaya's name, as well as a bench at a local neighborhood park. And finally, Anaya's Heart, an organization funded by her family, was formed to help prevent violence through training, empowerment, education, and then search efforts to help find missing persons. This is a really, really tragic case, and a lot of people believe that that had this young man not slipped through the system or somehow managed to game the system, that he would be in prison and he would never have had the opportunity to commit this crime against such a promising young woman. In any case, we will never know, but we do know that out of this case came new legislation, presumably intended to help prevent this from happening again. 
We are going to go ahead and wrap the case up for the day. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at the bfdpodcast at gmail.com. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild tales. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye!